Tina koutou, tina koutou, tina koutou katoa. Kojo Malcolm, tako inoa. No ototahi, aho. No mai, haere mai. Welcome everyone to this uh, session with um, Rebecca McPhee, who actually is a very, very old friend of mine. So I'm looking forward to this immensely. It's actually just like chatting with an old friend. <laughs> Helen Kelly was the first female head of the country's trade union movement, but she was also a visionary, a fighter, a strategist, and an orator. Her battles with local celebrities and politicians were the stuff of headlines. Sadly, Helen Kelly died of lung cancer in October 2016, aged 52. My friend, and she hates it when um, I talk her up, award-winning, amazing journalist and writer, Rebecca McPhee, who's also the author of uh, The Tragedy at the Pike River of Mine, has written a book about Helen Kelly and worked extraordinarily hard on it, doing absolutely meticulous research, as she always does. So it's a great pleasure for me to talk to Becky about her book um, and to gain some insight into this amazing woman and also um, an amazing insight into really the history of the trade union movement in New Zealand. But I'm going to start off actually just by reading um, just an excerpt from the book, which is actually at the very end. This will just give you a little bit of an insight into uh, Helen Kelly and who she was. She didn't use the I word. It was always us and we and our. The fight for a society that distributes its wealth fairly and assures dignity and participation was not hers alone to win or lose. That fight was and is a collective one. But her place in it was a calling to which she brought a fierce, bright and inspiring energy. Hers was a life of loyalty, love and duty, fully lived, a life of public service to, what, to which she, should, she could have given so much more. So, Becky, I actually just want to start off by asking you um, where this book came from. I suppose I, I, I thought about it at two levels all the way along. Um, probably, I probably wouldn't have decided to do a biography on its own. I think I, um, I you know, I had the, I was fortunate to have known Helen for about three years before she died. And I'd written a profile of her for the listener, which I was working for at the time. So I kind of knew enough to know sort of the shape of her life. And I mean, I, I liked and admired Helen as a person. And I, you know, I'd worked with her as a journalist. Um, but I also saw the opportunity to kind of use her story um, to tell a bigger story of change through time, through the lens of her, her family, as a, as a way of looking at um, really a kind of a 50-year period of tumultuous change in New Zealand. So that's, that was sort of my original idea for it. And even um, when it was first sort of suggested to me that, you know, would I do this book? And I, initially, I spent a couple of years saying no. Realised... Um, that if I didn't do that book, I'd just be really annoyed that if somebody else does it and they don't do it the way I think it needs to be done, I'd be really pissed off. <laughs> so that, that's why it, it kind of, in my mind, um, I was sort of constantly trying to manage these two tiers of, of storytelling, really. Mm. She, um, I think it was before you started writing, um, you had an interaction with her after your Pike River book where she came across the store and gave you a bunch of flowers. Yeah, Tell me yeah. about that. Well, that's how I first met her. And Because um, I, 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 I worked on the Pike River story from when the mine blew up um, at the end of 2010 through to end of 2013 when my book came out. Um, and But I didn't deal with Helen during that time. I saw, it, when I was working on the on that book, I and I know on my listener stories about Pike, I really saw no cause to seek out the head of the CTU to talk about Pike because the whole, you know, one of the critical points about Pike was that the union presence was so um, not quite totally absent but near enough to it and it was such an aggressively anti-union shop 
that um, and the whole sort of thrust of my um, thinking about Pipe was that it was fundamentally a, a corporate story and a deregulation story. And so the I, I didn't ever, you know, seek out Helen Kelly for an interview about the blowing up of Pike River Mine because I knew that the union movement didn't really know what had gone on there. So I just thought, well, they've got nothing much to say about that. I mean, I did find out as when I was working on this book that she was building relationships with the Pike families in the background through that time, but she wouldn't have been able to cast any light whatsoever on the fundamental commercial and uh, certainly the, the commercial drivers that had led to Pike blowing up. So the Pike book comes out at the end of 2013 and we had a, one of the launch events was at Unity Books in Wellington and went along in this it's kind of a very full room today. You know, it's a very <laughs> extremely, you know, it was lunchtime on a Thursday on a wet Wellington day or something and this shop, Unity, was... Um, Packed. Hmm. It's nice, but why? And um, at the end of it, this figure just appears, sort of walking across the room with this huge bunch of flowers. And this is Helen Kelly. I mean, I knew I would have recognised her, but only from you know TV and photographs and so on. And she comes across and presents me with this huge bunch of flowers and thanks me for writing the book, which kind of you know. By that point, Andrew Little had already had a go at me publicly for um, disparaging the engineers' union in the book. So I, and as I say in the um, in the foreword to the book, if I'd known that Helen, what I what I subsequently found out was that Helen had assembled the entire leadership of the trade union movement, um, which were happened to be meeting the same day just up the street in Willow Street, and marched them down to Unity Books to my book launch. And honestly, if I had known that, I would have been completely, you know, totally, paralysed. I would have been totally paralysed, and I probably would have just, like, not come to my own book launch <laughs> because I would have thought, I'm just going to get eaten alive here. And But no, I got given flowers. <laughs> and that was Helen, you know. That was, yeah. that was a classic sort of Helen moment. And then she, you know, she had a kind of remarkable presence, really, and she started talking about, the forestry campaign that she had been working on and which I had taken no notice of because, you know, my life at that point was pike and earthquakes. Um, so I had no idea that she'd spent the last sort of year and a half mounting this absolute sort of war on the forestry industry, which was killing workers in enormous numbers. So she gets up in this book launch in, at Unity and starts talking about the parallels between the Pike story and the forestry story. And, yeah, we became friends. And the spark was... Yeah, 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 yeah. I just thought, wow, this is... Interesting. This is interesting. She was a force of nature, actually. Yeah. I, she was actually quite scary. I, I, Bloody hell, yeah. I, she was scary. I met her once with um, my older sister, and we'll get onto that story in a minute, um, during the Hobbit thing. And I, I don't actually... I'm not really a shrinking violet. I don't get intimidated. Oh, Joe, but, you are so. <laughs> but, like, she was intimidating. Yeah. Well, let's, get, let's go back a bit because, actually, what I found amazing about this book is that you've really um, painted an amazing picture, actually, of how she came to be who she was. And um, let's talk about Pat and Kath, her mm. parents. I mean, she grew up in an, an incredibly... Um, unique environment. I mean, she basically was born into activism mm. with Pat Kelly and Kath. And um, just tell me a little bit about what that what that world looked like. I mean, there were meetings in Shannon Street in Wellington. It was she was literally thrust into this at a very early age, wasn't she? Mm, yeah, literally born into it. Um, so Pat and Kath's stories, I. I made the decision to devote a chapter to both of them before Helen even gets born, um, which was kind of quite a big, slightly risky call to make. But I did decide that um, to understand what who she was, you needed to get the, the origin story of yeah. both of them because, um, they're, A, they're so radically different, but they're both equally strong stories and, and they fuse in this house in Wellington and Shannon Street. Pat coming from total abject poverty in, on the Liverpool docks without enough food to eat and Kath coming from a Jewish slash 
Pakia legal family of wealth in Wellington who becomes communist um, while travelling in Europe as a young woman in the, in the late 40s. And then they, they both meet through the Communist Party and have first um, a son, Max, who's Helen's oldest brother, and then Helen's born in 1964. And Pat by then was an organiser for the Drivers' Union, which was um, uh, sort of still in a rebuilding phase after the 1951 waterfront uh, lockout when the drivers had been deregistered along with a number of other unions for supporting the wharfies. So Pat had kind of found a pathway into that work through coming up through the ranks from the, the shop floor of places like the Kaoro Mill and Merimiri Power Station and meeting Bill Anderson, a biography of whom is going to be coming out soon mm -hmm. too, and kind of entering into the realms of the Communist Party and being educated through the party. Um, you know, he had left, he'd had no education really. I mean, there was desperately poor, and then there was the the Blitz in Liverpool, and I, you know, there was there was no teaching other. I think at one point he says the only thing they learnt was hymns in the Catholic schools he went to. <laughs> so he, you know, he got educated, mm. um, and he would say that the only reason he was able to read and write was because of the party educating him. Mm. And and Kath had come to the party through her own sort of intellectual radicalism. Um, and so and, and between them, this household was just this kind of hotbed of activism, mm -hmm. um, primarily union activism, but not just that. I mean, the, the, the thing that I never really fully understood before doing the book was this incredibly sort of symbiotic relationship between the huge progressive movements of the era, um, anti-nuclear, the peace movement, anti -Viet the Vietnam War movement, anti-apartheid movement, and the union movement. I mean, they, to some extent, I suppose, you know, you could cynically say that the union movement provided sort of, you know, manpower for those movements. So, you, you know, the car factories of, the Lo of Lower Hutt would call a strike and, and everybody would be out marching against apartheid um, in a way that we, like in the modern era, you can't even comprehend that. Mm. Um, but it was also, I mean, it was also the, like, the, the very best of the ideals of the union movement in that it is an international movement. It is a movement of equity and justice. And issues like apartheid and war in Vietnam were travesties. And so it was, therefore, natural. right and natural mm. and proper mm. that the union movement as a movement of workers in New Zealand, would lean against that and be active against that. And it's this, I found that part of the story incredibly interesting, even though I've sort of worked in and around and written about labour issues for a long time, I had never really understood that properly. And, it's, um, and it's, that's probably a reflection also of, I guess, we don't understand what unions are. Um, probably anywhere in the Western world, but it's particularly not in this country. Um, you know, there's been an incredibly successful political project for decades and decades, I mean, you could argue for 100 years or more, to delegitimise the union movement as, um, you know, just a sort of a, a comfy kind of ruse for a few privileged union bosses, not an actual movement of workers who, who have a set of beliefs in a fairer, better deal for all of those who sell their labour for a living. And so this kind of interface with international progressive movements is, is part and parcel of that. Mm. She yeah. really, um, I mean, I, I was struck by this, you know, growing up in this household, that, you know, could she have done anything else? I mean, it was so... I mean, yes, there was parenting, mm. but, you know, Pat and Kath were on their own journey... Yeah. I'm just going to read a little bit here. This is a funny little bit that really appealed to me. On Friday nights, they would phone the Panama Hotel hangout of the Unionists of Trades Hall to tell Pat it was time to come home for tea. 
Half an hour before his dinner was ready to be served, we'd ring, remembers Max. Is Pat Kelly there, please? Dad, dinner's ready. I'll be home in 20 minutes, says Pat. <laughs> An hour later, he still wouldn't be home, and we'd ring again. Dad, dinner's ready. It's getting cold. I'll be home soon. I'll be home soon. Two and a half hours later, he'd wander in. <laughs> it paints a picture of um, the, the blokes club that the union movement was also at the time, yeah. apart from all the good stuff I just said. You know, it was... It was, it uh, was. There was a lot of drinking and a lot of smoke-filled rooms and, and mostly blokes. But... Um, but, I mean, you know, there was just a sort of a revolving door. It was an open door of, you know, wharfies and drivers and cleaners. See, Pat ran the cleaners' union in, yeah. uh, from 1976. And, and so, you know, the delegates, the cleaners who would clean buildings and toilets in the middle of the night would be turning up at Shannon Street and to organise strikes and um, to organise campaigns and organise wage bargaining. And the phone was always going. You know, there was just... You know, we're talking about the 60s and 70s here, so there's a phone on the wall in the living room and, and it goes and it rings. The whole time. <laughs> and Pat goes and answers it. And so every union conversation is, you know, in front of, in front of everybody in the yeah. living room. Yeah. And so it's just this kind of soup there, sort of, she, you know, she's marinated in it. But, I mean, the, I, I talk quite a lot about Max, um, her brother in the book as well. And you know, who doesn't follow this path. You know, mm, Max has cut yeah. his own pathway. And uh, although he's, you know, highly politicised and, and I know him really well, he's, he's, he didn't take the path that Helen took. So it's not absolutely inevitable. Um, it's interesting because um, in the chapter, The Militant's Daughter, because, of course, Kath had a very big part to play mm. too, and um, I'll just read another bit here. Kath marked out her daughter early on as someone who was likely to go far. In the bathroom, she'd labelled twin towel racks for the children. HM, Helen Margaret Kelly. PM. MP, Max Patrick Kelly. MP. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought yeah. it was kind of funny that the, yeah. the mother had actually decided that yeah. Helen was going to be Prime Minister, but mm. Max would just be a Member of Parliament. Mm. So what was it yeah. that Kath saw in her own daughter that made her... I mean, I know it was a family joke, yeah, but there was yeah. something there. Yeah, and I can't really... I, I was never able to fully answer that question because, I mean, you know, Kath died not long after Helen, actually. Um, so I was never able to interview her. But I think, I mean, Helen... It's just kind of a golden girl, really. She had quite a sunny personality. Um, and you see that when I talk about, you know, the, the high school years and her friends from that period mm. describe her. You know, she was somebody that people wanted to have as their friend. And um, so there was a lot of things that ran in her favour. Yeah. Um, she had a, you know, uh, a bright, quite optimistic, outgoing personality. And so, you know, socially life was easier for her. She was, she's not a star academically um, in, the, in that way, but she's bright, she's incredibly quick. She, um, you know, she was a bit of a square Totally, yeah. Like, yeah. I actually had this idea of this sort of radicalised, sort mm. of, you know, like, you know, I don't know why I thought she'd be out there sort of partying or whatever, mm. but actually she was a real square yeah. and she didn't smoke cannabis. No. She, even right through high school, that's how she was seen, yeah. wasn't it? So, that, you know, she, she sort of was a good girl. She was a good girl, yeah, yeah, total square. I mean... You know, she kind of she, her, she was a completely normal teenager to the extent that she just you know wanted boyfriends and parties and school discos and all the rest of it. But yeah, she was you know considering that there's probably a lot of people in this country that associate her only with um, the fact that she campaigned for medicinal cannabis. Yeah, that's um, right. Yeah, know. no, she was a total anti-dopehead. Yeah. 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 Um, the other thing, which you know, I mean, the, 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 the sort of the side, the positive side of all the union stuff was, you know, she was. Um, fully involved in the activism, but there was also a darker side. You know, you talk about um, she sort of almost in an offhand way, you know, had talked about the fact that, you know, Molotov cocktails were thrown at the house. Mm. And this leads on to a very, very dark mm. period. Um, let's talk about the Trades Hall bombing, because mm. mm. that was actually an incredibly defining yeah. moment for not only, well, clearly for Pat and Kath, but also for her. Yeah, I think for her. Yeah, I mean, it's... This kind of threat of violence sat with the household all the time, and there really were... I think Pat and Kath used to kind of shrug it off, 
Um, but Pat, Pat had put in a panic button in, in, in Helen's bedroom. It was on the foot of, by the, on the floor by her really? bed. Yeah, and one of her friends accidentally set it off <laughs> when they were playing one day, and it. Um, <laughs> And it set an alert off at the neighbours next door. And because, really? I mean, he'd come home at one point to find that, um, he, well, people who he thought were spies in the house rifling through things. Um, he'd had his car, the car painted, commie, you know, commie yeah. go home. He'd had tyres let down, uh, phone calls. You know, there was one time that Helen, I describe in the, in the book where Helen answered the phone and somebody talked to her about how... There's a man at the other end of the phone that describes in some detail about how he's going to kill Pat. And then she rings up Pat, who's still at work, to say, there's this man he just rang, and he just talked about how he's going to kill you. And Pat, you know, probably brushed it off. So it's hard to imagine... I know. ..what... That was like? ..that was like. Um, and this is through, you know, the period where the union movement is... Um, you know, there's a lot of strike action going on, particularly towards the end of the 70s. I mean, we went through a, a long period of no strike action, much like now, really, where, you know, mm. strikes are very rare. I mean, after, after the waterfront lockout in 1951, there's really two decades almost mm. of practically no strike action. And then during that period from, you know, with, as inflation increases and the oil shocks, then you enter into that period of much greater levels of strike action, meat workers and wharfies and um, people working on the Think Big projects. And so there's an increasing level of hostility being directed at people like Pat Kelly, particularly if they're POMs, you know. Yeah. And then, you know, then you get into 1984 when Muldoon's still in power and the Trades Hall bombing, and I, it was, I remember the Trades Hall bombing quite vividly. I was living in Wellington at the time. And it's really interesting that, you know, this was an act of terrorism in downtown Wellington. And I would venture that most people who, I mean, probably most people in this room are, are of an age to remember it, but people will remember the... the um, Rainbow Warrior bombing, yeah. which was only a year later. Yeah. And I don't think that there's that sort of socialised, internalised consciousness of the Trades Hall bombing in anything like the same way, which I think is also tells us something about how we think about the legitimacy of the union movement and the rights of the union movement to, to organise to further the interests of workers. So that's kind of an aside, but... Um, so Ernie Abbott was killed, he's mm. the caretaker. Mm. Was it meant for Pat? Nobody really knows for certain. I mean, I think there's, I mean, it seems quite random. The, you know, the suitcase is there, it's put, somehow it's put into the building really early in the morning. It's there by 7.30 in the morning in Trades Hall on a day when the management committee of the, of the Wellington Trades Council is going to be meeting. Right. So that would have, you know, mm. been known. Um, as a you know, as a several-hour meeting, but the the suitcase is there sometime before that meeting begins, um, and it could have gone. It was it, it's designed to blow up the minute anybody moves it. It's quite a sophisticated piece of work. So you know, and this is this is a busy building in those days. And the, the, the police told me that at one point there was two girls who schoolgirls who came and in, snuck into the building at lunchtime looked at it, thought about stealing it, and oh didn't. Oh, my gosh. So there's any number of times that it could have been detonated through that period from sometime before 7.30 in the morning until 19 minutes past five in the afternoon. And it's just a weird miracle that it didn't happen earlier in the day. I don't know that it's possible to say it wasn't directly aimed at Pat because it is so mm. random and it could have killed so many more people. Mm. Um, I mean, it's right, it's in the hallway next to the room where the management committee is meeting all day with probably about, I think, I'm not sure exactly how many people were in the room, perhaps probably about 10 or so. 
you know, so you could have had multiple fatalities in there. You could have had two, two teenage girls, you know. Um, in the end, it's poor old Ernie who's cleaning up at the end of the day and sees the suitcase still sitting there and wants to tidy it away, picks it up. Harmed so badly, he's unrecognisable. Oh, it's terrible. And that, that must have been almost, um, you know, it's really difficult to describe what that did to Pat, but yeah. that really mm. changed him. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it left a permanent mark on Helen too. And she was always, you know, she and Max knew Ernie very well. They would go and, you know, Ernie lived in the flat at the top of the building and they would go, they'd go in after school and wait for Pat to finish work and play mini golf and eat his lollies and you know, <laughs> things like that. And, and he had a dog, they liked his dog. So, and they had this kind, that was the nature of the relationship. They, were, they, they grew up around people in the union movement, around ordinary working people, and so he was their friend, he looked after them, and he, now he's, he's blown up. And Helen was 20, just under 20 at the time. And there's no question that it's a, mm. you know, it, it's a defining moment. I, I didn't put this in the book, but I came across some material where um, it must have been one of the significant anniversaries of the Trade Hall bombing, and she was being asked to be interviewed by a couple of journalists, you know, reflections on trade hall bombing, you know, your father was there and so on. And I, you know, I saw some correspondence that showed how distressed she was. She was upset that these young reporters didn't know anything about it and were somewhat dismissive of um, the level of violence against a completely innocent person that had been um, perpetrated here and I, that's one of the things that made me realise how deeply it had marked her. Mm. I think when things went poisonous with the Hobbit dispute, if we want to start talking about that, you know, she was shocked, but also not shocked, I suspect, in that she knew what this society was capable of turning on, on people who fought for the union movement, basically. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Um, we'll go, we'll get to the mm. Hobbit dispute um, in a minute, but this period in New Zealand's history, you know, like her life has kind of been a parallel mm. to some very, um, you know, ground-shaking economic changes that yeah. were coming in the 80s. So, you know, the Employment Contracts Act, I mean, that was the big battle for her. Once she sort of made that transition to jump mm. into the union movement, boots and all, there were now some very, very big challenges for her because of what had gone on mm. with Rogernomics, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah. The, the milestones of change mm. uh, match kind of her maturity um, almost exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, she's 20 when the 1984 election happens. She's in her second year as a union organiser when the Employment Contracts Act comes in. It's just before the global financial crisis when she takes over the, as president of the CTU. So she, I, I spent a lot of time in the book um, on the Employment Contracts Act, partly because it's a sort of a minor obsession of mine um, as to how that legislation came to be, but also because even though she wasn't in a position of great influence yet, she was still a junior mm. organiser, junior union educator at that point. Pat certainly was, um, and... Uh, was amongst those who'd argued for the union movement to take a much more sort of um, aggressive line against the bill, the Employment Contracts Bill, including a national strike, which never happened. So, but Helen, I spent that time on it and in the aftermath of the years of, of um, post, especially the 10 years of the 90s when the Employment Contracts Act just decimates... Um, decimates the union movement, it really collapses collective bargaining, notions like overtime pay and penal rights and regular hours of work that were all kind of controlled by national awards, uh, they vanish. Within two or three years, it's incredibly rapid. It's like a king hit, isn't it? Yeah. It just yeah. almost wiped it. Yeah, it's an incredibly successful piece of legislation. Um, and... Even though Helen's still young and still just kind of coming up into the movement at that point, 
I had to kind of play that through in the book in terms of its consequences because she inherits that. Mm. When she ends up at this, you know, leading the, the union movement in um, 2007, it's, it's the impact of that that she's trying to kind of fight the way out of, really. Um, so you can't understand anything about the significance of who she was without understanding that prehistory of what's happened mm. to the union movement in the 20 years hence. And it's kind of, she's, you know, the one thing that struck me reading this book is that at its very heart, and I guess that's something that she perhaps inherited from her parents, is that absolute desire to make life better for the individual mm. and to give people a sense of dignity mm. in their work and in their life. And that just really struck me again and again, that this was something which was sort of in her DNA, wasn't it? Mm. Mm. And that was Pat's way of operating too, really. I mean, he... Both parents are really interesting on this. I mean, Kath, Kath is much more of a sort of a rigid ideologue um, and a sort of an intellectual socialist. And Pat is kind of... He wears his heart on the sleeve a lot more. Um, you know, he'll be forever sort of, you know, putting somebody up or, you know, Take, probably taking money out of his own pocket to give to people, um, and personally affected by hardship, mm. and and I think you really see that with Helen. That's mm. what drove her. Yeah, yeah. So then she basically, you know, she launches into some. She's got several sort of, you know, big battles ahead of her, um, but at its heart was always the individual. And um, tell us a story of, you know, the young fellow in the security firm. Mm, Charon Preet. Charon Preet. So this is a story about a young fellow that she came across who she suddenly got that taste of having to take on the big, mm. nasty corporates. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you're right in that she... Um, it was about the individual, but she was also incredibly strategic. So right. and, and, yeah. and sitting behind all of this is also a kind of an undeclared class analysis. Um, but, yeah, Charon Preet... That was at the end of 2011, so it's, you know, the sequencing of things, the chronology is always quite important. It's about a year after she's been minced by Peter Jackson and, and yeah. Jerry Brownlee and John Key in the Hobbit dispute. It's a year, it was actually almost exactly a year after Pike had blown up. And she picks up the newspaper one morning and, and the headline is, killed on his first night on the job. And she reads this story about this young migrant. Um, he's, a, he's an overseas student, but he's a young migrant worker um, who's gone to work at a, as a security guard. It's <laughs> hard to even say the word security guard. On a Fulton Hogan site in West Auckland. I mean, he'd, he'd got the job like half an hour before he was left on his own on the site with his little torch and his borrowed boots and his borrowed high-vis jacket. And he's left to guard this remote, um, empty, dark building site owned by Fulton Hogan, who has contracted the security to this, you know, tin-ass little security company that operates out of a flat in Ellerslie with, you know, three contract workers. And so he starts work at 10.30 at night with his little torch and his phone and, he, and his car. And he's dead at 1.30 in the morning. Um, and he's discovered by the, some of the Fulton Hogan workers that come to work at about three. He's, this, he's, he, some intruders had come onto the site. He kind of had no training, so he didn't, do the, you know, he didn't sort of stay clear of them. He kind of went to have a look, see what was going on. They bashed him to death. And he's left there in this pool of blood. And, um, and she picks it up and says, we have to do something about this. And she, she just never let it go. I mean, no. nothing happened for that boy. You know, um, WorkSafe attempted to prosecute. Um, she, um, well, the, the police did... The police did take a case and it failed, so that wasn't entirely um, it wasn't entirely for lack of trying. But she just she just looked under every rock for that family. She had a, he, Charanpreet's mother and brother were back in India. I mean, they were the the, the address was something like um, 
and I can't remember, it's in the book there, but it's you know, something behind the soap colony. And, um, <laughs> you know, it's clearly, the, the, there's no money in this family. They've sold everything to get this boy to New Zealand to, you know, as we now know, hundreds and hundreds of mm. thousands of migrant workers have subsequently mm. come to New Zealand in this um, hope of a better life and perhaps a pathway to residency, only to be used as sort of um, guest work, disposable guest workers. So she, she, just, she just got that between her teeth and would not let it go. I mean, she, they finally unveiled a, a plaque for Charon Preet in 2015, and she by that point had cancer and was dying, and she's still Did fighting she? for some kind of dignity for this, for this young man. Legacy's a big word, but mm. there's a sort of a, a legacy there about never giving up yeah. and actually calling these people to account because that was actually underpinning how she went after the forestry yeah, yeah. industry in terms of protecting because yeah. at its heart were these really hard-working, mainly men, mm. who were killed mm. on the job. Mm. And she took on the big guys there, didn't she? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they hated it too, you know. I mean, in forestry, they spent the first... She just kind of went after them, basically. And they probably spent the first year denying there was a problem mm. and accusing her of scaremongering, accusing her of um, uh, manipulating the families, you know, which was kind of a bit cheeky, really. You know, mm. They're the ones that have kind of run the sites where these men are dead and they're accusing her of manipulating the families. I mean, her organising method was, um, was kind of... 50% getting the families sort of activated and involved and... Helping them. Helping them. Mm. And 50% just full-on shaming of these companies through the media. And in the end, they, in the end, they just they couldn't turn away from it anymore mm. and they agreed to an inquiry. Mm. And so you had this... And then you had, after that, you had this incredible year, a full 12 months where nobody dies in the forestry... It's fully the result of a campaign of shaming and organising. But she's dead now, and so they're back killing people again. Is that what's happening? Yeah, yeah, the numbers of deaths in forestry is way up again. So, yeah, I mean, you don't, none of these battles are ever won, right? No, I know. <laughs> yeah. So in terms of, um, again, like, the sense of sort of never giving up, and she, she was quite bolshy, mm. and she was quite out there, wasn't she? And mm. she could be really, really blunt. You know, it's, it's interesting when um, you start the book with The Hobbit, and in a weird kind of way, I thought it was actually quite good to end <laughs> on The Hobbit, because that was an incredibly <sighs> defining moment for her. And so... Um, you know, it was quite, it's quite close to me because my sister was sort of, um, as an actor, was involved in this whole thing and had death threats, and it was awful. So Helen Kelly called Peter Jackson a spoiled brat, which actually, in mm. terms of um, being out there, it's like sort of someone actually, you know, um, abusing the Queen mm. or someone. Like, it was, he was mm. royalty, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So th that really mm. was her moment where she got thrust so squarely mm. into our national consciousness. Mm. Mm. There was a, a you know, it was it was worse than abusing royalty. It's, I can't remember who wrote the piece. It might have been somebody like Daniel McLaughlin wrote a column a couple of mornings afterwards, saying it was as, the, the CTU may as well have urinated on the grave of Sir Edmund Hillary. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and it was she. I'm still not totally sure whether it was a mistake in her mind to have done it, but like she, Helen would kind of, words would fall out of her mouth, and, and I think those words fell out of her mouth, but, and, you know, the, the rest of the, Peter Conway, who was um, the CTU secretary at the time, the late and much-loved Peter Conway, was furious with her. He thought she'd just done just catastrophic damage in this kind of throwaway line. And, and she wrote to Jackson a, a very nice, very uh, remorseful email for calling him a spoiled brat when she knew that he wasn't really and that he genuinely believed um, in what he was saying and that he genuinely cared about the industry. And, but in fact, it was, it was Dylan, Dylan, as Helen's son, told me that he didn't actually really think that she regretted it at all. <laughs> 
<laughs> I bet she didn't. I think she probably didn't. But yeah. she became, um, you know, I think there's a there's some there's a line in there where she was the most hated yeah. person around. Like she she that that is really I think what a lot of people associate Helen yeah, yeah. Kelly with. Yeah. Bets you know, were being taken on whether or not she'd still be the head of the CTU by the end of the year. Really? Yeah, yeah. There was a, a sweepstake being taken, or a, you know that sort of sports betting thing. But and know, the dollar suffered. The, the dollar. <laughs> When Warners, when Warners was supposedly, when Wellington was going to lose the Hobbit, the dollar um, went down, and there was speculation that this was. And caused. we talked about this again last night. Is that I said to I said to you, you know, was she naive? Because of course, um, just to sort of recap for those that don't remember, you know, there was actually a deal done that you know mm. film workers weren't going to lose all their jobs. The mm. Hobbit was never going to go offshore, mm. but the deal was done. But. Mm. Or the, and the ban, the, the, the International Actors Ban had been cancelled. Yeah, cancelled. Yeah. So there wasn't going to be a mass mm. ban. Mm. But, but in then the she still was sort of put in front of the firing squad, yeah, wasn't yeah. she? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Do you think they actually wanted to destroy her? Is that what it was about? I don't know whether that was deliberate. I think you just... The only way I kind of make sense of that story and many others um, is, is you just have to think about it in terms of power and who has it and I think that you know Jackson the Jackson side of this dispute had all of the power it had the government entirely on its side I mean Jackson had been prepping the government for weeks before the whole thing before anybody even knew anything I mean he'd been prepping Chris Finneson and Jerry Brownlee for a lot you know some weeks before the public even knew that there was an, an issue you know, and he was a sir. You know, he was a knight of the realm. He'd been, he'd run a um, study on the film commission, and he was the insider, and he'd kind of created this industry for Wellington. So, you, you know, they don't have to organise very hard to have all the power when when they're in that position. Um, so, whether they were, you know, trying to destroy her, probably not. They probably didn't think they needed to. You know, mm. who is this thing? Let's just flick them off. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, the, I think the thing that really strikes me as well is that the tragedy is is that she had so much more, mm. didn't she? So yeah. it was incredibly um, awful with her cancer diagnosis and she, you know, she kept fighting. She just, I mean, this is the thing that strikes me about her is that she just never, ever gives up. No. And I, just before we go to questions, I just want to read this last bit um, that you write, which really affected me. Had she lived, Helen would likely have been a member of the Labour-led government that took office on October the 26th, 2017, probably as the MP for Rongatai. She would have gone straight into Cabinet without the usual period of apprenticeship for junior MPs. Without a doubt, she would have been a formidable presence around the Cabinet table and impatient with the inertia of government and the turgid pace of change. She was a rarity in that. As her influence and stature grew, she became more radical, not less. The more she heard from struggling workers and families, the more she saw of an economy tuned to favour capital at the expense of those who live by their labour, the more compelled she was to fight for change. Now that kind of made me really, really sad because in the current climate, my God, we could do with a Helen Kelly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just thought to myself, I just feel so sad that she's not here. Mm, mm. And you must feel that. I do, yeah, yeah. times over. And I, you know, a, a lot of a lot of people um, in the labour movement miss her actively all the time. Yeah. So she has a legacy, but who's taken up the baton? Yeah, it's interesting. The CTU doesn't have the prominence that it did in her time, but I, I mean, I would just say briefly on that that you know I, I meet a lot of the sort of upcoming generation of unionists at, in my reporting and they're incredible there are some just stars young women incredible young women that are working on really tough issues like um, you know labor hire precarious work you know endless sort of insecure contracts um, working in difficult areas including forestry actually trying to organize workers and and totally disorganised places like kiwi fruit, so I think we will see some powerful leadership emerge 
in the union movement. I mean, there's, and in some ways, the unions are recovering from that. The, one of the things that happened with the Employment Contracts Act is it created a, a, a generational gap because so many, so many unions had to downsize, lay off organisers. They, you know, revenue just went off a cliff for these unions after the Employment Contracts Act came in. So a lot of people kind of were pushed out or had to leave or were made redundant, ironically. Um, they weren't recruiting in. And so there's a, there's a big age gap that is now starting to kind of be um, replaced with this young, new talent that's coming up. And, I mean, Helen was very conscious of mentoring bright young unionists as well. So some of these people who we will increasingly hear from, I think, in the next few years, um, you know, have had the benefit of her mentorship as well. And that's why um, I think this is a really important book. It's incredibly inspiring um, for people to learn how to fight and mm. to keep fighting. Mm. Um, so we're going to go to questions, if anyone's got any questions. I've got a couple more, but if anyone else has got <laughs> questions. I'll start with, are we in trouble with workers now? Are we really in trouble with fair pay? Um, like, are we still up against it? Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, nothing's really changed. Most workers are not uh, working in a place where they're organised or members of a union. I mean, private sector membership in unions is only 10% of the workforce. Being in a union and being covered by a collective contract, which will, you know, will always deliver a better wage and better conditions, has become a kind of a bit of a white-collar privilege. Um, so there's much, much higher levels of membership and collective coverage in, in the public sector than in the private sector. And um, it's extremely difficult work to organise um, in places that are, say, scattered, you know, organising, say, Kiwi fruit workers. Uh, it's made even harder by the fact that a lot of these contracts are highly casualised and precarious. Um, I mean, I've been working on something at the moment which we've been looking a lot at areas like labour hire, um, where a lot of really good organising has taken place and, and you know, quite a, a lot of workers in that sector have benefited from that. But it, it would be scratching the surface, honestly, you know, these are people who can be put off without notice tomorrow, today, really. Um, they can work in a place for years, potentially, if nobody's watching, um, all the time at risk of being laid off the next day with no security whatsoever, paid less than somebody who's on a permanent contract doing exactly the same work next to them. Um, it's really... Um, just grossly insecure, let alone anything like redundancy, you know, which most workers don't have anyway. So, no, it's, it's pretty rough for a lot of workers, people, and um, multiplied, you know, amplified by the fact that housing is such an obscene um, catastrophe, really. Does anyone else have a question? How do you think the labour movement is going to survive in a world where... I mean, you talked about casualisation of contracts, but also um, people whose visas depend on having a job. Mm. How do you think they're going to cope with that new era in New Zealand? The scheme of the 1991 legislation was to destroy the union movement, make no mistake about that. And, you know, it just about succeeded, but not quite. So Helen sort of helped to kind of clarify this sense of purpose um, in today's unionists that the movement has to be about the position of all vulnerable workers, not just members of unions. So she, she broke that kind of nexus. She, you know, by, with, with cases like Charanpreet Daliwal, which, you know, infuriated some of the old guard, the, the, the old blokes. You know, some of them walked out of the CTU because she kept on pursuing this case of this non-union um, migrant worker who... Um, and because she was going after Fulton Hogan where there were unionised men on this, on, in their company. So she 
kind of broke that idea that the union movement is a thing for people who pay union dues. You know, I'm talking to people who are organising labour hire workers who are never going to be in a union. I mean, the minute a labour hire worker joins a union, they will never get another assignment. That's what happens. So they've worked out, First Union, for instance, has worked out, and they've been doing this work for years, they will secretly sign people up so that they're, you know, part of the community. They won't take a union due because there's a risk that the employer, the labour hire company or the real employer will find out and then they won't get back. Um, and they, you know, where they can, they, they take personal grievances, they, they get people converted into permanent contracts if it's, if it's a definite ruse, which it often is. You know, if somebody's been on labour hire for two years, then you know, you know who the real employer is. So, so, yeah, I mean, they're surviving and they're doing it, but it's hard, and the union movement is small. So, yeah, how will they survive? Well, it's a sort of a primal human response, isn't it, to, to organise in the face of injustice, and that's what you see when you, when you look at, you know, the, the best of union work now. I mean, the, and things like, like the living wage movement has been an incredibly successful that, is a, that, that was a union initiative, even though the unions didn't kind of claim ownership of it. They, it was, it's a collaborative movement with the churches and civil society to build a moral case for decent pay, for pay that's enough for people to live on. And the notion of the living wage has almost become like a standard, like an unofficial standard, even though it's got no statutory um, standing at all. So, you know, I see a lot of incredible creativity and drive in the union movement now, but it doesn't get much kind of public attention, I suppose, unless you read my stories. <laughs> I just wanted to say thank you so much. This woman's extraordinary in, this, in the work that she does with her books, and we're very, very lucky to have... Rebecca McPhee's around to tell a story of Helen and to keep her legacy alive. So thank you, my thank friend. Thank you.